Good morning, church. Good morning. All right, if you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 18 today. 1 Kings chapter 18. As you're turning there, um, do you know that there is a battle for your heart's worship? Did you know that? This world is clamoring for your heart's attention and allegiance. And the word of God today is going to deal with us in some areas that we have given in that regard. If I asked you, uh, what are the Ten Commandments? Anybody think you could give me all ten? Any hands up in the room? All Ten Commandments? I don't see any. Bart thinks he can do it. Well, what about just the first one? Could anybody give me number one of the Ten Commandments? Anybody know? Come on, you can shout it out. Okay, so the Ten Commandments, right? (laughs) I'm teasing, but no, actually, the Ten Commandments. Number one, what is it? Anybody know? No other gods before me. That's it. Right on. Yeah, when the Lord gave those commands, the very first one, he said, I am God. You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther says that never do we sin without breaking that commandment. For the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, idolatry has been a significant problem, well, really from the beginning, but especially since their days in Egypt. You know, they took on the gods of Egypt. And then as they came out of Egypt and Joshua led the charge to take the promised land, every land they went into, they, they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land. Instead, they lived with them. They married their wives. They took on their culture. And with that, they took on a lot of their customs and their false gods as well. It became part of life as an Israelite to not just worship God, but to also have these other idols in your world. I wonder if when you think of an idol, when we talk about idols, I wonder if your first thoughts are You know, things like a golden calf or a wooden carved image or maybe a stone sculpture of some kind that is this physical presence, a graven image, if you will. I wonder if that's your first thoughts. Maybe something you can see or hold or carry it with you that if you if you take care of it, it'll take care of you. Well, you know, certainly that is. One form of idolatry, but in the West, in our culture where we live, it's not the most prevalent. It's not the most common. Most people don't carry around their gods. We certainly see that in the Old Testament and even even in today's culture. But I guess if that's true, then the way we end up thinking about idolatry is that we actually don't have much of a problem with it. Right. Or do we? Well, I wonder if we actually transplanted someone from a culture where there are, you know, little carved images, little items that, where they carry around their, their God. And we brought them from their culture and just immersed them into our culture. And they walked around and did life with us. I wonder what would be their perception? What would they look at and say, of course you have idols. Look at what would they say? I, I have to imagine one of the first things they would say would be, what is that tiny screen you carry around with you everywhere you go, right? You can't seem to go 10 minutes without touching it, rubbing it like a little genie, right? Looking at it, reading its words, meditating on it. Communicating through it. You're so devoted to this God, I would imagine they would say. They would probably ask, why do you worship it? What does it give you? Now, I want you to think about that question. Right? Because idolatry is always a give and take, isn't it? 
This is the way idols work. I hold this thing. I take care of it and it will take care of me. So I wonder what would be our answer to those questions? You know, why do you worship it? What does it give you? Hmm. Or maybe they would come to your house and look at the arrangement of your living room and they would say, what is this box on the wall where all the seats are turned toward it? And it seems like when everyone comes in and sits, they all just stare at that thing. Why are we worshiping this thing? What what does it do for you? What would you say? Or what about if you took one of your new friends from another place in the world to a popular Saturday sporting event? And they went to a huge coliseum with thousands of people gathered and chanting and cheering and watching and observing this thing happen in front of them. Surely they would say, this is the most amazing worship I've ever been to. So much money spent for people to come here. This must be a great God. So many people betting on winners and losers. Some people even do pretend brackets. I don't know why they do that, right? But this thing matters to you, they would say. Maybe they would ask, why do you worship this God? These are good questions, aren't they? So I don't think it's that we don't have idols. I'm just giving a few little examples here. I don't think it's that we don't have idols. Maybe it's just we don't see that we don't that we do have idols. If you are in a life group, uh, one of your questions is really to dig into that scenario and think through maybe some other ways, other things that someone who's coming from an idol ridden culture would look at our lives and say, isn't that a God? So maybe it would help us today just to define what is an idol, maybe to get a good working definition of what is an idol. This is um, a simple definition. There are others, but think about this one. An idol is anything that you hitch your identity and hope to other than God. Anything that you hitch your identity, who you are, and your hope, what you need, what you want, what you're longing for, your help, other than God. So the questions of identity, who am I and why do I matter? What are you looking to to answer that question? Or what is my hope? What do I really trust in? What if I lose it, what would I fear most? John Piper gives this definition. I thought this was helpful. He says that anything in this world that successfully competes for our love for God is an idol. Anything in this world that successfully competes with our love for God is an idol. So here are more less tangible but common idols in our day and age. And there are way more than this. I just want to give you probably the most popular. Here's number one. Money. So many decisions are based solely on the dollar. Are they not? So many things we do, we evaluate, we think through, and then it all comes down. The bottom line is, will it give me more money? So much stress and anxiety is rooted in our appetite, our craving, insatiable craving for more money. The, the Bible says that the love of money is the what? Root of all kinds of evil, right? So it's not just that money is the root of all. Money in itself is not evil. But the love of money. So idolatry of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why? Well, hmm. maybe it's because money promises us things that it cannot deliver. You know, Jesus taught more about money than he did any other topic. Did you know that? He spoke more about money than anything. Why would he do that? Because he knows 
This is a deadly kind of appeal. It can get a grip on your heart in a hurry. Money. Second, very common, is sex. Romance. Are we not inundated with sexuality today? Every time you sit in your living room worship center and stare at that black box, every time you turn that thing on, you're going to see some kind of um, illicit material that's telling you that sex is where you'll find your happiness. Or romance is where you'll really be fulfilled. There's a multi-billion dollar industry in pornography. We talked a little bit about last week that is a major idol in our culture. So many people are investing in what they think will bring them satisfaction, but they, it will not. We know that. Not just porn, but what about Hallmark movies? I just, is my wife in here? I just stepped on her toes for sure. Um, or like steamy romance novels. I mean, these, are, these things are, are, are teaching your heart what to believe that it truly needs to be satisfied or happy. And we're drawn to this because it promises some kind of satisfaction. I mean, it, it, it promises these things, but usually delivers nothing but frustration and discontentment. So many marriages are on the brink of divorce or ending because a husband was chasing pleasure that was promised in these ways or a wife is seeking that perfect love life that she's seen in the Hollywood movies or whatever it may be. This is idol worship taken to its ends, right? A third very popular and common struggle with idolatry is in the area of popularity. Popularity. Um, And I'm not just talking to high school age here. Listen. Listen. In the world of social media, we are given, we are obsessed with the idea of likes and shares and retweets. We're obsessed with it. How many likes did I get? How many shares did I get? How many people have popularity? Does your heart constantly say, I need to be noticed, respected? People need to hear my words and think they matter. I need to be valued. I need to be liked by other people. I need, I need, I need. Maybe because there's an idol there, right? What they think is all that really matters. It's my place of identity. If people out there think I matter, then I matter. I'll be willing to make all kinds of sacrifices just so they'll accept me. If I'm not liked... I have no value. This is the effect of an idol on our hearts. A fourth would be success or power. So many men in particular, but women all the more these days, have drive to be at the top, constantly competing, chasing the next deal, trying to do whatever I can do. And the whole goal here is to make myself matter. I'm going to build this tower, make a name for myself. On the way, I'm willing to bend my integrity if that's what it takes to win. I'll do whatever I have to do as long as I get that next thing. It's a craving to be at the top. I need to be respected. I need to be envied. And I'll do whatever it takes. My greatest fear is failure. So we have an idol of success, I believe. Many. Obviously, we could keep going with this list. There's so many more. We've, we've created so many idols. Uh, we, can't even, we don't even have time to mention them. These are prop gods. They're false gods. They, they do not deliver. They're cheap imitations of the one true God. A famous theologian said, The human heart is an idol factory. We're constantly making new things to worship. So let me ask you, is idolatry still an issue? Okay, that's that was the point of all of that introduction is to drive us to the point where we acknowledge not only is it an issue, but it's my issue. Here's a very personal question. Don't answer this one out loud, but what idols are still 
gripping on your own heart? What idols are you still putting your trust or your hope in or looking to them to give you worth and identity? What determines your identity or your hope other than God? All right, with all that being said, let's read from God's Word. Would you stand with me? 1 Kings 18. I want us to dig in to this chapter, one of the most famous battle scenes. It's not a man versus a man. It's God versus idolatry. So would you stand? 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 40. This is the word of the Lord. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long? Will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls. Be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is a challenge, isn't it? And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Yeah, let's do that. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey and perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob To whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Let it be known that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. 
and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven and earth, there is no God like you. We thank you for the Bible and powerful stories of history like this one. God, I pray today that you would expose our idols and do whatever it takes to rescue us from them. Help us, Lord, to see the glory of Christ and the wonder of the gospel in these pages. In Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So Elijah's in trouble. Um, there's a little bit of backstory to this. Let me do some build up just to get us caught up. But Elijah has become enemy, public enemy number one. He um, rises on the scene as a prophet in chapter 17. And how he comes to fame is with one prophetic word from God. And it had a huge impact. The word was, uh, Elijah, tell the people that I'm going to shut up the heavens. There will be no rain, no dew on the earth for years. So Elijah speaks that word. You can always know a prophet If his word comes true and the words of Elijah proved to be true. Three and a half years, no rain, no dew. The Lord just stopped nature from doing its natural cycle and said, no more water. I'm putting you in a serious drought. Well, right after Elijah said that and. It proved to be true and everything began to die. Obviously, he uh, was no longer popular. <laughs> it's amazing how the messenger of God usually catches the heat. So the Lord took him and hid him by a, a brook and said, you, you can out in the wilderness, you drink from this water. And then uh, the Lord miraculously fed him with ravens. Uh, they brought him bread and, and meat every day. Until the brook dried up. And then the Lord said, I, 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 I want you to go and stay with a widow. And so he went to another town. He stayed with a widow. And as he comes to see her, she's gathering some sticks to build a fire, to bake some bread. It's like her last meal she and her son have. They've spent everything they have. They've just got this little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And she's getting ready to make a meal. And it's probably going to be it. And Elijah shows up and he says, uh, would you bake me some bread? sort of reminds me of the story of the woman at the well where Jesus says, would you get me some water? But the lady turns to Elijah, the widow, and she says, we, we really don't have enough for you. This is probably our last meal. Um, you know, the, the drought has killed everything. We don't have anything left. This is all we have. And Elijah said, the Lord has promised to provide for you. Bake me some bread. Husbands, don't try that when you go home. Uh, that, that, won't, that won't be good. Um, but God did that. He multiplied uh, the, the food. He multiplied the oil, the, the flour. The woman baked, and there, were, and there was more. She kept scooping. There was more. Kept scooping. It reminds me a bit of the feeding of the 5,000, right? When they broke the bread and spread the fish. It was like they started with just this little boy's lunch, and they fed thousands and they had 12 basketfuls left over this is the way it is when we trust God right well then tragedy struck the widow's home her son got deathly ill she began to ask questions what you are are you not a man of God and you've come here my son's going to die what what's going on here why this shouldn't things go well for us we're taking care of you right her son dies it's tragic 
Elijah goes and lays on his dead body. Begins to pray to God that God would bring this boy back to life. And this is the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. This widow's son is resurrected to life. And she looks at Elijah and she says, now I know that you are from God. And the words that you speak are from the Lord. All of chapter 17 is meant to validate this man as a messenger of God. It's also meant to teach Elijah's heart to have the faith that nothing is impossible with the one true God. But Elijah was hated by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Queen Jezebel was on a mission to kill every prophet of Yahweh. So much so that many had been hidden out in caves. They were chasing Elijah because he was the number one on her hit list. She wanted him dead. Why would that be? Well, remember the drought, right? Apparently all the gods that Jezebel wanted... All the gods that Jezebel was and, and, and Ahab were pushing on the people to say, if you do these things or if you cry out this way or if you do this to this God or that God or this God or that God, he'll provide for you. He'll take care of you. He'll do all that you need. But they couldn't get one drop of water to come from the sky. With all of their praying and efforts, it was to no avail. So while Israel is struggling with a drought... They'd been wandering in a spiritual drought for much longer. God had dried up the waters to draw their hearts back to him again. Do you know that he'll do that sometimes? The Lord will put you in a drought for a season. So that you'll come back to him. Stop relying on all the things resting in all the things you've been resting in. He'll put you in a season where you need him. But let's just make some observations together. If you're taking notes, I want you to notice some things in chapter 18. There's some specific things that the Lord wants us to see. First, the Israelites were limping with indecision. Did you hear that word repeated in this text? Limping. It's an unusual word, but I think I think gives a... a, a A great mental image of what's actually happening here. The Israelites are, the Bible says, limping in indecision. Chapter 18. Verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal... Then follow him. This was Elijah's sermon. It's pretty short, right? Short and pungent. Um, Maybe you would prefer that kind of sermon. I'm not sure. Elijah gets straight to the point. (laughs) I heard that. I heard that. Elijah gets straight to the point. Much like John the Baptist, right? He's very sharp with his words. He's addressing a people who seems like they want to worship God. They don't want to neglect God altogether. They're still sort of trying to hold on to who they who they are. The people that God rescued from Egypt. Who, he took us through the Red Sea. Took us through the Jordan. Gave us a new land. Gave us a place. God is good. Yes, he's good. But we've been dabbling in these other things. And these seem to be good too. Elijah's calling him to get off the fence. He's saying, go all in with God or with Baal. Make your choice. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to worship? Is it going to be God or is it going to be these false gods? But stop playing for both teams. It's interesting to note here that all religions are not the same. 
That's one of the big lies of the world today. It doesn't matter who you worship. They're all really the same anyway, right? No, this scripture is very clear. You know, Elijah's saying, you, you, you got to choose. It's either God or it's the, the Baals. He's essentially saying they're not the same. There's only one true God. And there's only one way to him. And the only way to the Father, Jesus says, is through him. But think for a minute, how, how timely is this message from Elijah? Many people today are playing church on Sundays, right? Agreeing with the gospel in their minds and yet pursuing the gods of this world all week long. You'd never know they go to church on Sunday by how they live the rest of the week. It seems like their hearts are really consumed with all kinds of other pursuits. Some even come to church to to pray, listen, that God would bless their pursuit of other gods all week long. Lord, would you please give me what I really want? Without it, Lord, I'm, I'm just... Incomplete, I'm unhappy. Please, please, Lord, help me with my idols. Elijah would say, stop limping between different opinions. If God is true, follow him. If Baal or whatever God you want, go after it. There's loads of confidence behind this challenge from Elijah, right? I mean, he's got some guts. He's. He's saying, get off the fence, make a decision, decide who you're going to be loyal. Where does your allegiance lie? Where do your true affections lie? Go hard in that direction. Well, he knows God is the one true God. That's part of his confidence. He's not afraid to call people to put all their eggs in God's basket. He's not afraid of that. But he's also zealous for God's glory. No one should claim relationship with this God And still be consumed with worldly pursuits. John would say it this way in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So they were limping in indecision. Number two, they were trusting impotent idols, impotent idols. What do I mean by impotent? What I mean is helpless, powerless idols. Elijah had issued a challenge, right? The prophets of Baal, they accepted it. That sounds good to us. Let's do it, right? Two bull offerings. You prepare it all. You get it all set up, but don't set it on fire. Instead, you call out to your God and I'll call out to my God. And the one who sets it on fire, he is God. Ironically, Baal is the God of fertility. Did you guys know that? God of fertility, specifically having to do with harvesting good crops. So Baal is in charge, apparently, of everything related to that. Weather, rain, dew, storms, thunder, lightning, everything related to a good reproductive harvest. That's all Baal's world. So he's already proven to be impotent with three and a half years of the inability to rain or bring dew. But surely he can send fire, right? I mean, has anybody ever seen a lightning bolt come from heaven and start something on fire? Absolutely, right? So if Baal is the god of weather and lightning and all of that, surely he can set this altar ablaze. This should be no problem for the Baals. So they sing, they dance, they they cry out in prayer. They're shouting, they're screaming out to their God. They they shout with praise. They shout with petition. This is amazing. In verse 26, they say, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And then here's that word again. And they limped around the altar that they had made. 
They did this for hours. Like early morning, past lunch, into the afternoon hours. They're just wailing and crying out and calling out to Baals. Well, finally, Elijah decides to do a little smack talk. You ever been in a fight with somebody and you, they start talking smack? I guess Elijah was, he was ready to bring it. So he starts, he says, get loud. I mean, he's a God, right? He's probably just, you know, thinking about something else. You need to get his attention. He's musing. He's over there just, you know, pondering deep things. Maybe... Maybe he's in the bathroom and the little fan is too loud. And he, he can't hear you over the, the fan. You've got to shout. Maybe he's out of town. You know, he's, maybe he's just been traveling and he's out of town. So maybe he's taking a nap. Is he, maybe your God's kind of tired. I want you to think about these insults. This sarcasm here is really getting to the essence of of who is God. We know that our God doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. We know that he's not here and not there. God is omnipresent, right? He's ever present all times, all places. So he's not out of town. I don't know what the, the whole bathroom thing is. That's just laughable, I guess. Just a good, good quality jab. Um, thinking about something else as if God's mind could, could, could be consumed with one thought and not accessible to another. The one true God? Surely not. Well, they didn't appreciate his sarcasm, but it didn't stop their determination. They got even more determined. They began cutting themselves, the Bible says, taking their swords, their their lances and cutting themselves so that they began to bleed like blood is gushing everywhere. No one could say they didn't try. They gave it all they had, right? But the truth is no one said anything. There was nothing but silence from their God. Verse 29 gives this threefold answer. No voice, no answer, no one paid attention. Now, no doubt they were sincere, right? But to be sincere in your faith gets you nowhere if you're sincerely wrong about who God is. Baal and every other idol is impotent, helpless, powerless to do what you want it to do. No matter how much you dance or shout or cry out or go to great lengths of personal pain and sacrifice, your idols, listen, your idols are unable to do what you're hoping for. If you're looking to money to satisfy you, it will never be enough, right? The more you have and hold, the tighter its grip will be on you. You won't have it. It will have you. If you believe you'll finally be happy when you get into that relationship with that special someone that they're going to make you feel important and valuable and worthy, your happiness is too much of a burden for them to bear. She cannot be your God. He might be a decent husband, but he's a terrible idol. He will not fill your heart with joy. Success in your business is a blessing, but don't take your eyes off the giver to celebrate the gift. Don't be consumed with his gift without looking unto Jesus. God will not allow you to replace him with even the good gifts that he's intended for your blessing. Every idol is impotent. Unable, helpless, powerless. We must stop trusting in these things. Thirdly, God demonstrates his omnipotent, omnipotent grace. Mm. Elijah had let this go on long enough. He'd given every advantage to the prophets of Baal. It was 450 to 1, right? I mean, they had, they had a pretty good, pretty good advantage to start out with, but... 
He let them go first and, and get this. It's a big deal because this is sort of a you know, first one to score, winner takes all kind of competition. Whichever God brings fire, that one's the winner. He's God. That's what we'll do. And, and Elijah says, you guys go first. Give it all you got. But now Elijah takes it up a notch. He rebuilds the God's altar that had been destroyed. This is a big deal. He wasn't just proving a point. He was reinstating rightful worship of the one true God. Elijah takes 12 stones and the Bible says these stones, each one represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a big deal here. Elijah is dealing with a divided people, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. They divided, believe it or not, over idolatry. Two golden calves split the kingdom. And Elijah saying 12 stones are gathered around the worship of the one God. Come on, people. Let's come together, Israel. He reminds them that God had made his covenant with them as one people. And then Elijah takes probably the, the biggest marker, the, the, the craziest thing I've ever seen. He takes huge buckets of water, right? And douses the whole thing. Just saturates it with water. Helpful tip. If you want to build a fire, don't pour water on it. You don't pour water on something you want to burn. Water stops fire. I mean, this seems to be like a big mistake. I can almost imagine the prophets of Baal, you know, once they get their band-aids and stuff on, they're like, what's this guy? What's this guy doing? Why is he putting water? This guy's an absolute fool. Doesn't he know like fire and water? Oh, what an idiot. So that's the first thing, right? So Elijah essentially dumps water repeatedly three times, dumps water all over this altar. And essentially he's saying now this will be impossible to burn. But it's more than just that. Do you remember what's going on in the world at this time? How valuable is water? There's a drought. We've been in a drought for three and a half years. Nobody, people are dying of thirst, literally dying of thirst. And the Israelites are on the mountain. The prophets of Baal are on the mountain. Maybe they're not going, what is this idiot? What's he doing? Maybe they're actually going, what are you doing with our water? That's all we had. Why are you, why are you wasting water like this? Mm. So often worship looks like waste. But Elijah was doing whatever God instructed him to do. He wasn't just making stuff up as he went along. God wanted to prove himself in such a way that there'd be no denying God's power. And God is saying what your heart is most thirsting for. You will only find it when you're fully devoted in worship of God alone. Then Elijah prays and we must notice His prayer takes about 30 seconds in contrast with hours and hours and hours and hours of the most exhausting begging and pleading of a false God. He didn't dance or shout. He didn't cut himself. He asked God to win back the hearts of his people. He says, God, make yourself glorious. Show this people that you alone are God. And that I am, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm just a servant. I've only done what you've told me to do. He made himself small. He made God glorious and big in their eyes. God-centered praying like that is powerful. Do you know it? In James chapter 5, he says, pray, pray like Elijah, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And in James 5, he says, Elijah, he prayed. That it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and God gave rain. This is the kinds of praying that's powerful. When Elijah prayed this way, fire fell from heaven. It was so intense, so hot that it burned up everything. The wet wood, the wet sacrifice, the bulls totally incinerated. Dust, even the water is licked up. Flames are just licking up water. Did you notice that even the stones were melted away? God is not impotent. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. When the people saw it, they shouted, 
The Lord, He is God. I was checking this out because I love this phrase. You know what that sounds like in Hebrew? Do you know what it sounds like? Elijah. Did you know that? Sounds a lot like they're chanting Elijah's name, doesn't it? Elijah. Did you know Elijah's name means the Lord? He is God. The people are not chanting his name, though. They're chanting what his name and who he is, what he stands for. Declare the Lord is God. God had won their hearts back. Not only did he win the fire contest, but he won back their idolatrous hearts. Now, a false God demands your performance. Let's talk about false gods versus the one true God quickly. I want to give you three things you should notice here. False gods demand your performance to please them, right? You, you got to try harder. You got to keep going. You got to work, but it'll never be enough. A false religion, false hope says this. Listen, your acceptance is based on your performance. If you think that way, you think like this. I, I, I will, with everything in me, I will obey my God and maybe I'll be accepted. But that's not the gospel. The good news of Jesus says this, that your acceptance isn't based on your performance, but Christ's performance. I'm accepted by Christ, by God, through Christ. Therefore, I joyfully obey God. A false God pushes you to your own pain and suffering. They kept trying. They kept working. They danced. They shouted. They even cut themselves. Every other God will drive you toward your own death. But Jesus is the God who went to death for you. He doesn't demand your blood. He gave his own. Through his own death. Jesus brings you life. Thirdly, a false God will leave you thirsting for more. Spiritual drought comes to us through idolatry. But when the people of God repented and worshiped God, Elijah knelt and prayed for rain. And on the seventh time they went and looked and there was this little bitty cloud like a man's hand coming over the mountain. Elijah's like, here it comes. God send in the rain. When your heart drinks deeply of the grace of Jesus, he truly satisfies. Do you believe that church? Listen, Jesus told that woman at the well, he says, if anyone who drinks of the water that I have, they will never thirst again. There is true lasting joy and eternal satisfaction with our God and with no one else. But I can't help but notice one fourth truth from the text today. To reject him is to face inescapable judgment. To reject God is to face inescapable judgment. We have to notice the prophets of Baal are immediately taken captive and slaughtered. Not fun to talk about. But none were able to escape. This is a startling portrait of the judgment of God. It's gruesome. It's awful. It's probably much worse than you could imagine. But it is too shallow a shadow of the greater reality that is yet to come. It pales in comparison to the judgment that's coming for all who reject Christ in the end. The false prophets met their end at the end of a sharp sword. It was swift. But eternal judgment will be a suffering that never ends. It's the death that keeps on dying. Now may this image serve as a warning for us today, a a call to his merciful grace. We notice that Elijah used 12 stones, right? You remember that? 12 stones around to build the altar. Those stones were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 tribes were swept up in idolatry. They were wavering between, is is God our God or should we worship these? What, What should we do? They were on the fence 
in their worship. They were serving God and money, God and sex, God and popularity. What they saw when that fire came down and melted the stones that represented them, they saw the white hot blaze of a holy God and his righteous judgment. It was a picture of what he could do and what he should do to them. Justice displayed. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is with his, his disciples. They walk into Samaria, a city where the people, they, they hate them, and the Samaritans reject them. Do you remember what the disciples said to Jesus? Should we call down fire from a heaven like Elijah and just roast them all? Let's just fry them, right? And Jesus was like, guys, no. That would be cool, but no. no. But listen, he says, you're actually missing the whole point of Elijah's story. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Jesus isn't calling down the fire. The gospel is seen here in that Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the one absorbing the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. He's the one that the... That the the altar, the, the sacrifice on the altar is absorbing the white hot wrath of Almighty God in your place, in my place. Everything we deserve is being poured out on Christ on the cross. Then God demonstrates his power in miraculously raising Jesus from the dead. Amen. And through faith in a crucified and yet risen Savior. The lamb who was slain is yet standing in Revelation, right? Everything we deserve poured out on him. And yet we, we are spared the justice we deserve and extended mercy through Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no other God who has died for you. Through faith in him, any sinner can be forgiven. Renounce your idols, church. Renounce your idols. Proclaim to your own heart that the things you're looking to for satisfaction will never provide it. The things you're looking to to sustain you, the things you're hoping in, they aren't there. Your identity rests as a child of the King. Turn to Christ. Walk in the freedom and joy of the Lord. Let's pray together.